transformational truth number 13. Attaching our identity to our activity will put us on a roller coaster of misery because we spend all of our time working towards an identity rather than from one. Welcome to the Transformational Truth Podcast, where we're committed to eliminating the obstacles that take the joy out of life and leadership. Our special guest on Transformational Truths is Tolian Tavijan. Tolian is the grandson of the late evangelist Billy Graham. He was the founding pastor of New City Church in his hometown of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which later merged with the historic Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in 2009, where he served as senior pastor until June 2015. He wrote a number of best-selling books. He traveled extensively around the country speaking. Tolian founded a ministry called Liberate, a ministry that sought to connect God's inexhaustible grace to an exhausted world. And he did this through conferences, books, a daily radio program, and a weekly TV broadcast. And then it all came crashing down in the late spring of 2015. As a result of infidelity, Talian's first marriage ended in divorce, and life as he knew it came to an end. You're going to be exceedingly blessed by my interview with Talian Tavijan. Let's get started. Our special guest today is Talian Tavijan. Uh, Tullian, welcome on. We're really honored to have you. Thanks for having me, Travis. And let me compliment you on such an impressive pronunciation of my difficult name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, man. I'm batting 100 out of the gate. Let's see if we can. Yes, you are. Let's see if we can stay there. Um, (laughs) So here's today's transformational truth. Attaching our identity to our activity will put us on the roller coaster of misery because we end up spending all of our time working towards an identity rather than from one. And we're basically talking about the subtle temptation uh, to attach our sense of identity to what we do rather than what Christ has already done for us. Um, I've just discovered in my own life that when I do this, I end up looking for the affirmation of others to give me a sense of worth and value. But the truth is um, that we'll never find enough affirmation from the outside of us to satisfy. And eventually it'll either break our heart, burn us out or both. Um, our identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. Tully and you have written and talked about the dangers of a performance-based identity. Um, I think it happens to all of us and it usually is pretty subtle. We don't know when it's happening. In fact, I'd love to just read a short excerpt from something you've written um, because I think it's gonna help a lot of our listeners relate You said this, you said, there was a slow and subtle shift that came on like the slow creep of the tide rather than a sudden tidal wave. It was a shift from locating my identity in what God had done, the message of the gospel, to locating my identity in what I had done, my success as a messenger of the gospel. You said, my worth, my value, my deepest sense of who I was and what made me matter, my identity was anchored in things like my status, my reputation, my position, uh, who my friends were, my skill with words, my ability to lead, the praise I received, the opportunities I had. 
Tolian, can you talk to us for a few minutes about the impact that misplacing our identity can have on our lives? Yeah, uh, that is a great question, Travis, and one that I have wrestled with, obviously, and experience. Um, I went through a massive identity crisis in my early 40s as a result of my life falling apart, my own crash and burn, uh, my own bottoming out. And I think uh, I was thinking about this yesterday because I knew you were going to ask me this question. And um, I think the way I would love to answer this is to just reflect for a minute, and I'll connect the dots here in a second, but to, almost, to reflect for a minute on um, Luke chapter 15, mm-hmm. uh, the parables that Jesus told of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Yes. Um, I think it's super important for us to understand that Christians get lost also. Um, and how that can generate a real identity crisis. Because when I was growing up, and this is probably true for anybody who grew up going to church, the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin in Luke 15 were explained as parables of evangelism. In other words, I was told these parables were Jesus's way to describe the lengths to which we, the found people, should go to reach people who aren't Christians, the lost people. In other words, these these parables were God's job description for us. Right. Um, and so this interpretation of those parables really split the world into two kinds of people, lost people and found people. The lost people were those who did not know God, and the found people were those who did. And while that's one way to divvy up the human race, it also makes a very simplistic and wrongheaded assumption that Christians don't get lost or that Christians have no need to be found. Uh, and so I'm convinced, based not only on what the Bible says, but my own experience, I'm convinced that we desperately need to rediscover the reality of Christian lostness. And what I mean by that is this, if we don't, then all we are left with when a Christian wanders off into the far country and gets lost in his or her self-induced messiness is to doubt whether they were ever found in the first place. Right, (laughs) Um, right. And so, when sadly, that assumption is made all the time. Without a robustly real category of Christian lostness, what, we're, what we often hear is that when a professing Christian goes off into the dark, it can only mean that they were never in the light to begin with. Um, mm. But the fact is, we all get lost as Christians. And these two parables reassure us that Jesus never stops finding us in all of our lostness as mm. Christians. So... Rather than these parables being about God's job description for us, they really portray God's unflagging commitment to constantly coming after those who were once found but now are lost. In other words, to put it bluntly, these, these aren't parables about found people pursuing lost people. These are parables about God pursuing found people who get lost. Wow. And And the proof of that is that in both cases, the lost sheep and the lost coin were at one time not lost. That's right. The lost sheep was in the fold and the lost coin was in the pocket. The lost sheep wandered off and the lost coin was misplaced. But the point is that neither of them started off lost. Um, And so 
to deny that we all experience lostness is to kind of blind our eyes to the truth about ourselves and others. Um, we often, for example, get lost in our pursuit of meaning or love or purpose or importance. We get lost in our dependence on people and things to save us from aloneness and insecurity and a sense of inadequacy. Mm -hmm. We get lost when hopes and dreams crash and burn, when one of our children goes off the deep end, when our parents get divorced, when our marriage fails, mm. when she breaks up with you, or when you don't get the job you want or get into the school you want. Um, I mean, we get lost all the time in anger, hurt, bitterness, pleasure-seeking, self-righteousness, unforgiveness, and so on and so forth. Um, but, and here's the connection I want to make between lostness and identity, I think that the deepest lostness we experience as Christians is when our roles become our identity. Mm. So for instance, there are a lot of retired people that I've talked to over the years who have described a profound lostness of meaning now that their career is over. For so long, they had located their identity in the work that they did and all that came with it. And now that their role has changed, they experience a late in life identity crisis. Um, I also see this with parents when they become empty nesters for so long, their identity was anchored right. parent and taking care of the kids. Um, but you know, when the kids grow up and move away, the parents lose their sense of purpose and significance. They don't know who they are or what to do. Their role had become their identity. Um, mm. and when your roles become your identity, you experience new forms of lostness every time your roles change. So, I mentioned my own crash and burn back in 2015, but because I was unfaithful to my first wife, I lost everything in 2015. I lost mm. friendships, family, my job, credibility, financial stability, hope, joy, opportunity. I mean, it was all gone overnight. Life as I knew it was over. And I didn't realize it at the time. My security, my deepest sense of who I was, like you had mentioned, my identity was anchored to my roles. And because of this, when those roles vanished, I didn't just suffer grief and pain and guilt and shame and loss. I began to suffer a severe identity crisis because mm. without these things and without these people that I had unconsciously depended on to make me feel valuable and important, I no longer knew who I was. I was lost as a Christian. Wow. Now, the good news for me and all of us who get lost when our roles become our identity, the good news in these parables is that Jesus spares no expense to find us in yes. our lostness. He meets us in all of our meandering 70 times seven. So when we foolishly wander off, as we inevitably do, the good shepherd always comes after us, comes after wow. us, picks us up, puts us over his shoulders, carries us home every time he's always meeting our guilt with his grace and our mess with his mercy and our mm. faults with his forgiveness every time. In fact, one of the things that I like to say about God's love is that his love is mugging in nature. It <laughs> bugs us. Uh, we are mugged by his mercy. And, and the interesting thing about those two parables is that it tells us something beautifully true about God that we often don't think about, or we often hear the opposite of, and that is that he never chides us for getting lost. Mm. He seeks us, finds us, rejoices, and throws us a party. I mean, nothing and wow. no one could bar the way of the God who is in hot and gracious pursuit 
of his lost children. And, um, and so I, you know, two of the things I've learned very acutely over the last five years, six years almost now, uh, since my life fell apart. Uh, number one, you are capable of failing and mm. getting lost in a way that is unthinkable to you right now. Mm. That's the first thing, which is a sobering and scary thought. But the second thing is God's love and forgiveness are big enough to cover the fact that your greatest failure may be ahead of you. So no matter where you go or how far you run or how stubborn your roaming may be, he will never stop coming for you with infinite amounts of gritty grace and forceful forgiveness. It is his joy Mm. to come after you. Um, And I just think when that truth, when that reality uh, sinks in when that understanding of God and his unconditional love and his outrageous mercy and his amazing grace sink into our hearts, that becomes our identity. We are, one of the things I like to say is, you are not what you do. You are what Jesus has done for you. That wow. is who you are. You are forever loved, accepted, approved, justified, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. That is who you are at your core. That is your ultimate identity. And when that becomes increasingly real to you, when that fact, objective fact becomes increasingly and subjectively real to you, um, you don't, you, you tend to confuse your roles and your identity less and less. And now your roles can change here and your role can change there, or you can lose this or you can move in that direction instead of that direction and not feel untethered because you will never be unanchored by God based on his love for you. Wow. I think, uh, Tully, and one of the things you said that was super important, by the way, this is incredibly rich. And I think people listening are going to need to, hit rewind a few times and re-listen to this because it's worth its weight in gold. I think one of the things that you just did for all of us is help us to realize that it's okay to not be okay. Yes, that's exactly right. Because I think there was a stigma. And I think just saying that you can be, you can be a Christian and, and find yourself lost. I think there's people that they're not sure if that's even okay. Mm-hmm. And um, there's so much condemnation sometimes that mm. that you just saying that I think brings a sense of liberty to f- people feeling lost, that sense of lostness, mm. um, but not wanting to confess that or admit that because they're not even sure. Is that okay? Is that even, yeah, is that even Christian? Yes, is um, that even I, Christian? Exactly. There's, there is a, uh, a, a now deceased old Presbyterian minister by the name of Jack Miller who was himself a radical grace guy and found himself at odds with many of his uh, stuffy Presbyterian brothers while he was alive because he was so stubbornly insistent regarding the grace of God. And one of the things he is famous for saying, which I often repeat, he would tell people all the time, cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. (laughs) But God's grace is infinitely greater than anything you could ever ask for or imagine. And I think holding those two truths together is so liberating because if I am able to admit that I'm more jacked up, 
that I'm more selfish, that I'm more rebellious, that I'm more egotistical, um, that I'm more jealous, that I'm more insecure, that I'm more afraid than I want to admit, and I'm definitely more so than I want you to see. If right. I'm able to admit that, well, that opens me up to the possibility of God becoming my everything. Um, mm. I mean, if because so much of our image management or the concealing of our shadow sides or always feeling the pressure to put our best foot forward, um, right. you know, all, when all of that ultimately is a self-salvation project. We are trying to gain or win the approval of other people. We're trying to gain or win our own approval. In the worst cases, we're trying to gain or earn God's approval. And yes. when you realize that all of the approval I long for, I already possess because of what Jesus has done for me, yes. well, that sets me free to tell the truth about myself oh, without man. fear of rejection. And that just gives you, that's why, you know, when people talk about some of us who are insistent on this message of preaching grace, like this is some soft message. I'm like, soft. Right. I'm like, right. this is the only message that will give you a steel spine. That's right. And be bold enough and courageous enough that's to right. actually take off your mask, stop pretending you're better than you are, tell them true truth and nothing but the truth about yourself right. and rest in the fact that even though others may reject you because of Jesus, God never will. So you can literally say, here I stand and not be moved because of it. Mm. Uh, I just think, I think it is, it is a tender message in its, in its um, expression of God's love and God's acceptance and God's approval fully and finally in Christ. But it's also a tough message, not in the sense that the message itself is tough, but that it, it creates people who are in one sense tough enough to stand in the face of other people's disapproval and rejection because they mm. know that they have God's approval and God's acceptance. Mm. Yeah, it's. I think sometimes there is um, a temptation uh, to think of the message of grace as a light message or as as milk, but it but really grace is the meat. Oh, it is the meat. It is. It the is meat. the. It's the best meat. Oh and man, I, it's so funny you even mentioned that because I've heard that charge right. against right. me at different times. I've written a number of books and some of the reviews of those books from people who don't like the message of grace because they think it's too willy nilly um, and too soft. And, you know, they are the ones who will say things like, you know, this is, we need to move on from milk to meat. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to say very respectfully, dude, uh, <laughs> right. right. Going from going from do to done. Going from just do it to it is finished. That is the movement from milk to meat. That's it. Not the that's other it. way around. No, that's that's it. it it's, it's the same. Tully and I have discovered it's the same concept. I mean, who needs all the rules? Children do. It's as you mature that you grow right. in a relationship and you don't need all of the rules. It is, right. it is the, it's the transformation of old to new, to new covenant, the paradigm shift. Um, I, the way that I, I think that's really well put, the, one of the ways that I put it is... Um, the life of the Christian or spiritual growth, let's put it that way, spiritual growth is like learning to drive a car, 
the need for constant instruction slowly gives way to instinct. And oh, that's good. You know, I just, I kind of think, okay, well, where are we headed? If, if heaven is where, our, is where we are headed, and there we will not need to be told what to do. We will just do it instinctively. Right. right. Um, well, is, shouldn't we be moving in that in direction? In that direction. <laughs> right. Shouldn't, right. We, shouldn't the trajectory be in exactly. that direction? So, yeah, I just, you know, I, when, uh, when I hear preachers doing three-part sermon series on the evil of pornography and uh, how dangerous it is or whatever the case may be, some, you know, I just pick on that one, but there are many others. Um, on the one hand, I understand it. Because, you know, I mean, we, we're calling something out that needs to be called out. But on the other hand, my mind goes to how many of the people sitting in front of you really need to be convinced that pornography is a bad thing? Right. I mean, they all know it. That's, That's right. That's not the issue. The issue is that there are people in your congregation who are addicted to it and they don't know how to stop. That's right. That's, that's what the gospel is addressing. Yes. Um, so, you know, telling, simply telling people what to do is not what inspires them to do it. That's telling right. people what God has done inspires oh, people to do it. That's the gospel. That's, it's, it the, it's the gospel. And, and Tullian, man, this is my, my heart is leaping out of my chest right now. It's the, um, you know, if I say fire truck, fire truck, fire truck. We're both thinking about a fire truck. If 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 the only thing I preach about is you know stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning. Well, no wonder why people still struggle with <laughs> sin. I mean, in, instead of focusing on the finished work of Christ on the cross, and the fact that He didn't just die for me, He died as me. That, um, and that what you just said there, Travis. Okay, is something that in the last two or three years uh, has resonated with me in a deeper way than it ever had before. And I mean, mm. I was, I was theologically and academically trained and the theology that I embrace now is the theology that I fully embraced before my crash and burn in 2015. It's become more personal to me um, and less abstract because of what I've gone through, but it's, it is, it's the same content. But one thing that uh, a development in my own heart and mind uh, that I think is completely consistent with my theological paradigm is what you just said. When, when Paul says in Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin so yes. that we might become the righteousness of God, it, he's not simply saying that Jesus died for adulterers and murderers. He was saying that Jesus died as an adulterer and murderer. Yes. And that almost sounds blasphemous to people. Um, even saying it, I'm like, am I allowed to say that? Am I a heretic for saying that? But that's exactly what Paul That's knew. right. I that's mean, that's the, gospel. the beautiful doctrine of imputation, that our sin right. was really and truly imputed to Jesus, so that he not only died for that sin, he died as that sin. And mm. then his righteousness is fully imputed to us. Um, so I just, I think that is a huge point. And that is so, it's so scandalous that it almost has to be true. <laughs> you know, if it's, if it's too, I've come to realize that if it's too digestible, it's probably watered down. Um, if it's, if you walk away from a message like that and say, there's no way that is true. It means it probably is. <laughs> right, right. 
Um, Tully, and you said a couple things I want to um, recap before we move on. Um, and you already answered my second question. So uh, you said um, uh, you are not what you do. You are what Jesus has done for you. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's incredibly strong. And then you mm -hmm. said, um, Jesus set you free to tell the truth about yourself. <laughs> wow. Both of those are liberating what I would call transformational truth bombs. Mm -hmm. um, this past week, I read something that you posted on Twitter and um, really impactful, really, really important. And I want to read it for our listeners. You said, if you think that God's primary goal for you is that you be an example of moral goodness rather than trophy of his grace, you'll never be honest about your deepest sins, struggles, and secrets ever. Mm. You'll always feel the pressure to pretend you are better than you truly are. Tully, and why is this concept so important for us to understand? Yeah, I think you and I were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, but Yes. It is a great concern to me that most people understand Christianity as being nothing more and nothing less than a moral code to keep. That's yes. the message of Christianity. Right. It's do more, try harder, get better, climb higher. And if you don't, then it's reasonable to question whether or not you're saved. I think one of the most dangerous things, one of the most toxic things that preachers or other Christian leaders can do is to preach or communicate in such a way that causes those whom God loves to doubt whether or not God loves them. Oh. I just think that's incredibly dangerous, and we see it all the time. But Christianity, rather than Christianity being about a moral code to keep, Christianity is about Jesus dying for those who failed to keep the moral code, which mm. is you and me and everybody else. Um, and so uh, I think the, the primary or the predominant messaging that goes out from the Christian community these days is moralism, uh, which we can distinguish from morality. Morality is a good thing. You know, it's, um, it's a loving God and loving your neighbor. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, moralism is the re a religion of being good a religion of doing good. But right. that's what most people think Christianity is. Um, and so as a result of that, church, which should be the safest place for fallen people to fall down and broken people to break down, has become the scariest place for uh, fallen people to fall down and wow. broken people to break down. Because the, the, the message that has gone out is if you are a Christian, right. you are not only a good person, but you are constantly pursuing good. So right. if, if you fail in that regard, um, then, you know, maybe you're not a Christian. Um, I, and I, you know, I just, it goes back to the identity issue, honestly, because, yeah. um, you know, so much, I mean, so much of uh, where we locate our identity. Um, and I, you know, I said this a minute ago, but who we truly are has nothing to do with us. Right. Uh, it doesn't have to do with how much we can accomplish or who we can become or what we've done or failed to do or how obedient we are or what other people think of us or 
the things we've accumulated or our behavior, good or bad, or our strengths yeah. or weaknesses or any of that. Um, that our identity is firmly anchored in Jesus' accomplishment, not ours. His strength, not ours. His performance, not ours. His victory, not uh, ours. And because of that, that's so um, it just it sets us free to go, dude, my reason for existence is to be a reflection of God's grace. Mm. And if everybody looks at me and sees what they think is a perfect, stable human being, which none of us are, but we are, we all have PhDs in trying to at least portray <laughs> that about ourselves. Right. Um, but if, if that's what people see, do they really get an accurate picture of God's grace? So it's not about going out and doing bad stuff to prove God's grace. It's, admitting right. the bad stuff that is true about us already right right that gives a testimony to god's grace because some people say well should we go out you know like paul says in 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 uh, Romans 6 so are you saying that we should go out and sin so that grace may abound and of course paul says that's not at all what i'm saying in fact if that's what you think i'm saying you've completely misheard what i've that's said right. it's not about going out and doing more bad stuff so that god's grace will abound it's admitting that you are bad so that right. people can see God's grace. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, you know, it's just, it, it, even that in and of itself, like, should we go out and do bad stuff? I'm like, you don't have to go out and do bad stuff to, to, to prove God's grace. Just tell the truth about yourself. Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I think, I think you just addressed probably the greatest stigma. I think, especially when, you know, as pastors, there's, there's many pastors that are listening, uh, I being one of them, but you know, I came into this only a couple of years ago. Um, it, but I think that's sort of the stigma. I think there's like this fear it's funny mm -hmm. how you can mention if, before had I mentioned the word grace too many times in a sermon, I would have gotten some crooked glances, you know, like, yeah. where's he going with this? Be careful with the grace stuff. It's funny when you mention grace because behind it, there's always this, well, be careful with that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's like, there's always this be careful with this because I don't think we properly have ever understood grace. Well, we, we no grace is like, Hey, that's a good sermon series. Right. Or, you know, I'm saved by it, but. But, oh, there's always a there's yes, always, grace, but. Yes, always. there's always. Yeah. And what here's what I've discovered personally, Talian. Grace is not a sermon series. Grace is the message. It's the message. That's it, exactly it, it, what it is. It is the life-transforming message. I have seen in my own life and in the lives of the people I lead and pastor, more transformation since I began preaching the message of the new covenant mm. and grace and building on that than any other time in my 17 years of ministry, mm. because mm. it is the power of God unto salvation. It yep. is the gospel. I used to think I preached the gospel to Leon. I mm. wasn't, I was preaching the Bible. Yeah, dude, that is so well put. And I, and here's what I can't stand when people, uh, use the word gospel for everything for everything for everything so it's like okay you know I, this morning i preached the gospel i'm like you never mentioned right my sin and my savior substituting himself for me not just in the past right but how that how that shed blood continues to cover me in yes. the present and for the future and what that means in a moment of temptation or what that means in a moment of failure or whatever the case may be um that's the gospel. Right. And uh, you can't just, you know, preach on 
a particular subject and say, right. I, yeah, I've, I've preached the gospel. You're right. Exactly right. I, I think now I do believe that once you discover this revelation of, of the new covenant and how God relates to us through the cross, it's all I, over the Bible. It's yeah. all, it's everywhere. Yeah. I, I mean, everywhere. I can, yeah, right. I, I, I can preach the gospel from any book of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you should, that's exactly right. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think before this understanding of, of the new covenant and the gospel in grace, um, you know, I would preach something and think I just preached the gospel, but the gospel is by very nature of its definition, good news. And I did not preach any good news. It was right. all bad yes. news, you know? Right. Yep. So anything I think, that gets us to focus on ourselves and what we must yes. do for God is bad yes. news. Bad news. That's um, bad news. And I, you know, in, I wrote a book called One Way Love and in it, uh, it's sort of my manifesto on grace. And in it, um, I, I say this about grace. I say grace is a divine vulgarity that stands caution on its head. Mm. It refuses to play it safe and lay it up. Grace is recklessly generous, uncomfortably promiscuous. It doesn't use sticks, carrots, or time cards. It doesn't <laughs> keep score. Grace works without requiring anything on our part. It's not expensive. It's not even cheap. It's free. It refuses to be controlled by our innate sense of fairness, reciprocity, and even-handedness. It defies logic. It has nothing to do with earning, merit, or deservedness. It is opposed to what is owed. It doesn't expect a return on investments. It is a liberating contradiction between what we deserve and what we get. Grace wow. is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Mm -hmm. It is one-way love. Wow. And I just think that um, I use some of those adjectives on purpose in that definition because we need to be shaken, yes. stirred, and scandalized by grace because it is a scandal. If, it, if the message of grace fits too neatly into what we believe Christianity is, yep. it is not the message of grace That's right. that is given to us by God. Because wow. it does not, the way that I would put it to the church I used to serve in Fort Lauderdale was grace is not some new app for an old, for our old operating system. That's good. It is an entirely new operating system. Uh, and good. this is a funny and somewhat embarrassing admission here, but I was, I'm going back to probably 2010 or 11 now, but my whole staff, I was pastoring this large church and had a large staff and my entire staff had switched over from Blackberries to iPhones at that mm -hmm. time. That was like I remember. the big technological transition that was happening. Right. And I refused to do it. And the reason I refuse to do it is because I am not really good with technology. I had finally figured out how to use my BlackBerry and was very efficient with it. And uh, the thought of having to learn a new technology, a new right, operating right. system, scared the crap out of me. So I refused to do it. I mean, I had people making fun of me on staff left and right. I mean, they were treating me like I was a dinosaur, okay, for holding on to my BlackBerry. Um, and funny story. So my assistant at the time 
I was getting ready to go into a meeting and she said, Hey, I need your Blackberry real quick. Cause I need to download your calendar. And I lost it on the computer. I was like, no problem. So I go, you know, the meeting's over. I go out and it's gone. I'm like, where is it? She's like, Oh, wait, blah, blah, blah. anyway, make a long story short. They confiscated it from me, got me an iPhone and downloaded <laughs> all. So they forced me into it. Um, but I, I say that because I think so much of that is true for us as Christians. We're so used to this, old operating system it it's safe it's familiar we understand it right it's you give you get out of something what you give to something it's very conditional it's a conditional operating system if i do these certain things i'm guaranteed to get these certain results yeah so the message of grace scares the crap out of us right because it's an unconditional operating system Right. And we're so used to conditionality, the idea of unconditionality, it not only wrestles control out of our hands, uh, it, it takes the leverage that we feel we need away from us, mm. and we can no longer get or guarantee to get good things because we do good things. And that wow. scares the crap out of us. Wow. <clears throat> wow. I can relate to what you just said. I think when I when my operating system was upgraded, you know, when I, when I went from this, this different paradigm, this kind of old covenant paradigm of relating to God to the new, hmm. it wrecked me, but it was, it was, um, initially it was, it was very, I don't know if intimidating is the right word, but it was very, I was very uncomfortable because yeah. I didn't know how to navigate this new land, this new territory. Hmm. And I had spent so many years, you know, preaching, thinking I, man, I, I knew what I was preaching, knew what I was doing. Suddenly I'm going, wait a minute. So, wait, what do I do now? You know, I was so conditioned to do, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And yeah. um, how do I preach? What do I preach? And, and it's a, it's a journey. It's a beautiful journey. But when I started out, it was, uh, it was definitely unfamiliar territory. Yeah. Well, I, I can completely relate to that. And I give voice to many others who have reached out to me that they also can relate to that. Um, I was sitting by, I was sitting in my backyard. This was probably in 2009. And uh, I, I was beginning to undergo a paradigm shift theologically. Mm. Uh, and to really understand what the centrality of the gospel really is and the radicality and hilarity of God's grace, what it is, what it does what it covers yeah. and i was so i was i was undergoing this sort of paradigm shift i was in the process of it and someone told me a good friend of mine who he's gosh in his 70s now and he is a former professor at a lutheran college in irvine california uh his name's rod rosenblatt we, those of us who know him call him the rod father because he <laughs> introduced so many of us to this message and um, he, had, he told me to read a book by a, an, an old dead Lutheran theologian by the name of Gerhard Ferdy. Mm. And I think the name of the book was just Justification. I think that's what it was. And Ferdy was so radical. Uh, you know, even his Lutheran comrades considered him to be a radical. Um, and yet I think he was only radical to those who were conditioned to hear law. Uh, but I was reading a book of his, this book, on my back patio uh, back in 2009, 
and I was captivated. It was a real page turner. I mean, it was heady. It was a heady book, but it was a real page turner. And I got to the end of one chapter, and the chapter ended with Ferdy asking this question. And this question so wrecked me. This was the tipping point for me. This question at the end of this chapter was the tipping point for me, and it pushed me over the edge. Um, he said, so in light of justification, this idea that you are now and forever in and loved and approved by God, regardless of who you are or what you do, in light of that truth, what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? And wow. that's the way he ended the chapter. And I was like, dude, you can't say that. Like, wow. that's, that's blasphemous for you to say that because I too was so conditioned to go, okay, yes, Grace, but I mean, yes, right. I get that I have a lot of, I guess I get that God's blood, sweat, and tears got me in, but what about my blood, sweat, and tears that keeps me in? Like, wow. that's what I need to hear about. Yeah. Um, and so for him to ask that question and then just leave it there, which was his intention. I'm just going to leave it there, and I'm just going to let that bomb do its exploding work in mm. the minds and hearts that read it. And it did. It did an exploding work in my <laughs> mind, and, and uh, I've never been the same since. Um, Talian, for someone that's listening who can relate, someone who's tired, uh, somebody who's weary, frustrated, they've, they've looked to their activity for a sense of identity, um, what encouragement would you offer them? What would you say to that person who's listening right now and can say, I can relate to this. This almost seems too good to be true. What would you tell that person? Man, I would probably reiterate some of the things that I've already said, which is um, that because of the gospel, we now spend our lives working from a place of approval and love and acceptance. We no longer have to work for approval and love oh, and acceptance. And I think if we're all honest, we would admit that most of our significant or otherwise insignificant pursuits on a daily basis are pursued with the idea that doing this will garner me something I feel like I need in order to be happy, in mm. order to be at peace. And when we realize that everything we need in Christ, we already possess, that sets us free in ways. So for instance, when it comes to my relationship with my wife, um, I thoroughly enjoy receiving love from my wife, Stacy. Um, but there, it's, there's a difference between enjoying it and needing it to survive. And if I ever feel like I need it in order to survive, then I am going to be extracting from her, demanding from her things that only Jesus can give me. Wow. So when I realize that all of the love I need I all, and crave I already possess in Jesus, that enables me to love her. That gives me the perspective to love her without right. needing anything in return. I'm able to give everything to her without needing anything from her because everything I need in Christ I have. But when you wow. multiply that across the board, when it comes to your relationship with your spouse, 
your work, your hobbies, your children, uh, yourself, God, whatever. Mm. Um, now we begin to experience some of the freedom that Jesus paid so dearly to secure for us. Wow. The transformational truth we're tackling today, attaching our identity to our activity, puts you on a roller coaster of misery because we'll spend all of our time working for an identity rather than from one. Tullian, where can people find you? Well, uh, if they live in Jupiter, Florida, I can give them my home address. That would be the easiest place <laughs> to find me. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, uh, my wife, Stacy, and I live in Jupiter, Florida. And a year ago, we planted a church called The Sanctuary at the so request exciting. of a group of people who wanted us to come here and do that. Um, and so we are here doing that work and we're excited about it. We're getting ready to reopen uh, since the shutdown is lifting all around us here in South Florida. Um, but people can find me on Twitter. Uh, they can find me on Instagram. They can find me on Facebook. I'm, I'm not, some of my handles are different. Uh, so my uh, Facebook handle is just at Tully and T. Uh, I think my Instagram handle is at Tully and TCH. And then my Twitter handle is at Tully and T. So they can find me there. I also have a website, just Tullian.net. And uh, the sanctuary has a website also. Our church has a website where people can find us. And that is just the sanctuaryfl.org. Awesome. Awesome. Tullian, this was incredible. It helped us. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Travis. 